Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Sarah Dursa here in the studio as my guest on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Sarah is a principal at KG&D Architects. She joined the firm in 2015, and in 2021, she became the first female principal in the firm's nearly 90-year history. As a principal, Sarah is passionate about finding design solutions that address and improve social issues. She has taken a leadership role in advancing her firm's expertise in next-generation educational facilities, such as Pelham Hutchinson Elementary School and the award-winning Brewster JFK Elementary School. Prior to joining KG&D, she was an associate at HOK, where she co-founded HOK Impact, the firm's corporate social responsibility initiative, and served as the inaugural chair of social responsibility, overseeing social outreach efforts across multiple locations and employees. She also played a pivotal role in the pro bono design team for the William Jefferson Clinton Children's Center in Haiti. Sarah is part of the national design team for reimagined schools, contributing to pilot projects for educational facilities. She has spoken about this work at various conferences, including EdSpaces, AAO Design Matters, and at the AIA New York. She is involved in women's design and construction, recipient of the Young Architects Award from the AIA, and was named 40 Under 40 by Building Design and Construction in 2013, a prestigious honor that I too share uh, in the same year, which is pretty crazy. Sarah, thank you so much for being my guest here on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. All right. So, um, I think you and I share the idea that our profession needs to adapt and change. And for me, it's through conversations like here in the podcast, technology, internally treating employees and colleagues with great respect, creating a great culture, a great firm in that way. In my research on you, one of your main um, reasons and one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on um, was that you have a clear design ideology that design should be that design should begin upstream at a policy or mission level and should not operate in a silo. What do you mean by that? Right, so I think that design is kind of the last phase of something, right? We design a space and people use it. But to get to that point, there's so many things that go into the decisions for people to do a project, um, for you know why things need to happen. And I think that being involved in the conversation as to how those things get developed and what's important to the client and you know how it's going to impact their lives and then designing a space around that, that should all be connected. Okay. I think especially in, in school design, right? I love talking with educators about the pedagogy and how they want to teach and how they want their students to learn <clears throat> and how we can then create 
new spaces that will both support that and allow them other opportunities to, to teach in new ways. Right. And then what do you mean by the sort of policy level? Right. So that's actually, um, it's been a latent interest of mine for the past 10 years or so. I've, I was involved in a um, progressive political leadership institute called uh, New Leaders Council in 2013. And I don't, I don't have any interest in getting involved in politics, <laughs> but I do like the idea of the policy issue. So um, I've had a, a challenge, I think, trying to find a way to directly combine policy and design. But I've taken some classes and done reading about things like, um, for example, I took a, a class uh, about uh, big, it's called Big Data for Social Good. Yeah, we're going to get to that for yeah. sure. Okay, <laughs> right. And and it's about, it was all about like the American dream, right? And how um, it's getting harder and harder to, for people to achieve that. And what are the things that impact it? And, you know, part of it had to do with education and housing. And then all part of it had to do with the policies that, you know, shaped where people went to schools and lived. And so I think understanding how the two go hand in hand can really strengthen people's lives and kind of how they're living and, and developing and what the opportunities that they have. Yeah. And so it's funny because that kind of leads me to my next question is that if we're being truly honest, and I think it's kind of unfortunately true, but uh, is design uh, predominantly influenced by rich people? Like if you have money, does that mean you sort of control good design? It's interesting. I mean, I think I, I believe that everybody deserves good design, capital Absolutely. E architecture, right? Yeah. And but I think it is it's harder to get access to that, right? Yeah. If you don't have that money. So there, you know, I think there are so many different groups and initiatives and people who are are reaching out. I think one of the things that we were trying to do with HK Impact was to bring capital A architecture to to anybody. Yeah. And it can be it's not necessarily full-scale buildings, right? It's It can be any kind of intervention. It could be a space or it could be, you know, furniture or just something really well thought through that is meeting their needs and giving them something to be proud of. Yeah, and I think on the policy side, that's kind of where I was thinking is, is there's, obviously there's a government side of architecture, right, that will build absolutely extraordinary, beautiful buildings, right? The the African Museum on the, the new one by David Adaje, right? I mean, these extraordinary buildings, they clearly spent a lot of money on them, right? But those are always the, let's call them the monument buildings, right? But is there a way policy-wise that it can influence, that we could influence, you know, the the normal things like schools. I feel like schools, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the, your educational um, experience, but I know when I worked on schools, it was sort of, there was a budget, which I understand, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it was always sort of pushing the, the budget lower and lower and lower at the expense of so many things, right? And so here we build monuments of museums and all great things, but then when we get to public housing or schools, we try to, you know, drive the cost down as far as possible. You know, is there, I don't know, in your thought process, is there something on the policy side where we can start to influence that? Well, I think it's about inclusion, right? And who is involved in the conversation. And you can, you can do 
great design on any kind of a budget, right? It's yeah, just absolutely. about being creative <laughs> and thinking of all, you know, you think about um, Rural Studio, right? Where they're using windshields to make chapels and hay bales and things like that. So right. you can be creative. Absolutely. I think it's really just about the listening part of it, right? The um, who is this meant to serve? And are they at the table? Do they have a voice? You know, are you imposing something on them that you think should be beneficial to them when it's really not practical? Right. Or are they involved in that conversation and, you know, you understand what their actual constraints are and, and why something might be problematic or why, you know, they, they'll explain something and they don't know why it's not working. And I think as architects or design thinkers, you know, can, can we piece different things together to come up with a new solution that might impact them positively. Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if you had to pick one thing, uh, what annoys you about your fellow architects? Um, one thing. <laughs> oh, there are going to be multiple uh, yeah, things. No, I'm no. all for it. <laughs> um, I think architects are, we're, we're know-it-alls, right? Hmm. And, you know, I think it's, in a way it's good. You know, you can, um, dip your toes into a bunch of different things. But I think the problem comes when you think you know more than somebody else's expertise yeah. or you're not involving other people in the conversation um, and making kind of unilateral decisions on what you think might be best when um, somebody else might have a real background in it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. And, and you can see that it's probably less and less these days, but you can see that in sort of the old school, like master architects, right? And the referencing public housing, I think of, you know, the Corbu stuff and the Mies stuff that they did and these ideas around housing. And it's a disaster, right? It's, yeah. it's horrible. It's terrible for people. It made nice photographs and buildings. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. You definitely have to involve many people in what we do to get the best product. Right, right. And outside of design and construction as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, what are your biggest frustrations with just the architecture industry in general that you come across kind of on a day-to-day -day basis? I, I think it's, it's getting better, but I remember um, going to conferences before and, you know, we talk to ourselves a lot, right? You know, we'll, you know, on the, um, we'll be talking about active learning and, you know, a big thing will be just taking the stairs. And it's like, are, well, are you involving like healthcare professionals or educators or things like that in the, in the conversation? Or is it just, you know, us thinking of good things to talk to each other about? And I yeah. think having those cross disciplinary collaborations can only strengthen what we're all doing. It's a good point. I never thought about that because I think about like when I worked on Google projects, right? They had all of these um almost like standards they not not standards like hey it's going to look this way or be this color but it was you had to walk a certain amount of steps to get to a pantry you had to use internal steps and i always wondered like who thought of this and you're right did, did they consult a medical professional or is this just sort of someone decided this in a room like how did this happen <laughs> yeah yeah I, um i think we we someone comes up with an idea like the the learning stairs or something like that and then you right. see everybody doing it yeah you know, i mean it sounds good <laughs> yeah and i mean and they're beautiful and they're really interesting but i think you know to ad advance 
in any of our professions, you know, we should be talking to each other about what's next. Right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So architecture as a field um, always, you know, played a role um, in, in shaping the built environment and impacting society. Do you think that architects have lost their stature uh, and and how we're placed on sort of a lower rung in the professional hierarchy? Well, I think I'm not sure if if people necessarily understand all the things that architects can bring to a project. Um, and I know that there are some, you know, mayor initiatives and things, you know, that, that bring architects into the conversation, too. But what I think that architects do well and that people should really um, could benefit from are, are the, this is the design thinking aspect of it and asking questions. And I think, you know, architects are, are problem solvers, but I think in a large part, we're also problem finders. Right. And thinking about things that people maybe haven't thought about in their day-to-day -day operations and kind of questioning those things. Um, and, and through that questioning, allowing projects to evolve and change and you know be something that they might not have been before. Yeah. So I don't I don't think that, that answers your question directly about where we fit into the rung of things. But but you brought up design thinking. I, I think that's actually a good thing to define because it comes up a lot. What's your sort of definition of design thinking? I think design thinking is is largely problem solving, right? Mm -hmm. And there's you know there's convergent and divergent aspects of it. You know, some where you're just you know, throwing out ideas and kind of defining different problems and pulling different things, disparate things together and linking them and then trying to come to the essence of what you're solving and shedding some of those ideas and getting to the heart of what's going to be the actual solution that makes the most sense for that project. Yeah. And I see that thrown around. I, I, I guess it's, it's funny because we do that right? Like automatically, that's what we do as designers, architects, even mm -hmm. engineers, it, you know, we, we sort of think that way. Uh, but I see it thrown around a lot in school, like in my kids' school, you know, design thinking, design thinking. I do wonder if they really have it figured out or what exactly they're teaching. But uh, listen, it's a step in that direction, which is which is great. Right. And it and it if nothing else, if it's not, you know, exactly design thinking, it's, you know, maybe opening their eyes to different ways of doing yeah, things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so our architecture, uh, our, you know, architecture schools, I think, are amazing, right? They teach um, they teach a lot more of on, a, on the design side, maybe even from the technical side. What do you see? Do you think they lack in terms of the business training? Yeah, I, th I think so. And we had a, I went to watch you for architecture and urban design and we had a required pro practice class, you know, that was everyone had to take. But I think it, it doesn't begin to prepare you for what it's like to be in the business of architecture. Yeah. Right? And that's something that you can really only get when you're actually when you're doing it. Right. Um, and you know, from trial and error and, <laughs> right. and you're like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. But right. yeah. Yeah. I have mixed feelings because some, some days I wonder, you know, should you be, should architects be taking some sort of just even basic finance and accounting just to understand kind of how that is or because we, we ultimately take a designer that seems to be more on the project management side and put them in project management. And then we like, well, how come your billing isn't done? How come this isn't done? How come you f haven't figured out a cost to complete? And 
those are all learned steps along the way and nobody teaches you that. And I wonder, does it really matter? Are you gonna still have to learn that on the job anyway or should we be teaching that in architecture schools? Well, I think it's it's a lot easier to see it in a real world situation, right? Then instead of a hypothetical. Yeah. Um, I think you need to have the introduction to these are the types of things that you will be doing. And, and it's great if you're on a project or in a firm where you can shadow somebody or there's that mentorship and so you don't have to make the mistakes along the way and you can right. see somebody do it. But I think um, equally important in architecture school are the skill, like the soft skills, like presenting and, you know, a, a real focus on graphic design. Because I think yeah. we see it a lot copying other people's presentations and stuff, but but a f actual focus on present how to present and yeah. how to talk about your projects because you'll do it and then get eviscerated in a review <laughs> <laughs> and it'd be nice to maybe be prepared ahead of time yeah i never thought about that that you know what we do we hold here we have these monthly gatherings here and that's you know we do announcements and sometimes play games and have a lot of good a lot of fun um but i will call people up randomly to present and never has anyone ever said like oh i don't like presenting in front of a crowd, right? Like you never see that from an architecture student. I guess you're just, you just learn that from day one. Like there's no crowd phobia kind of thing. Yeah, but it, it's, a, it's a learned skill, right? Mm -hmm. of how, to, how to do it well. Um, when I was living in St. Louis, we had these um, pachakacha nights. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's, no. it's, a, it's, it's really interesting. I, it started in Japan and it's, uh, you give 20 slides, 20 seconds per slide, and it advances automatically and you could just talk about anything. So it's, I think it's I think it's like six minutes and 40 seconds total. Okay. And they would schedule these events and you can get people to go up and present and you, you could talk about photography or skateboarding or, you know, I did one on um social responsible, socially responsible design. And um, you just have to get up there and there's no stopping the slides. You just have to keep on talking through it. And it's, right. it's super interesting. And I, That's I'm, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get that initiated in my firm right now because I think it's a great way for people just to talk about their interests. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you don't have to talk about a project, but you do get that, that speaking that experience. Speaking, yeah, 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 yeah. And thinking off the top of your head. Right. Um, in the in the introduction, I mentioned that you were the first female principal in um, KG and D's you know ninety year history. Um, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, have you faced any challenges because of your your gender in terms of your career growth over the years? Um, I think I've been fortunate in that I haven't faced too many. Um, and when I have, I've been able to pivot and, and do something else. So um, I was in an office that was a little bit of a boys club before. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I had the choice to either like really step up and prove myself. And, you know, I, I had one project that was, I was really proud of it. There were like, you know, a team of 40 people in a room, all consultants, and I was one of three women. And as the project went on, kind of dwindled down to the essential players, I kind of stayed in the room, which mm -hmm. I was proud of. But I think it, it's it's exhausting trying to, to think about that, too, like do the work and think about the female representation. So, yeah. you know, I, at a certain point, I was able to kind of pivot and work on some of the smaller projects and just take ownership of all of the pieces of them, which was really 
nice for me as well, you know, right. to get exposed to different things that I might not have been if I had been part of a larger team. Um, and then I think in terms of the, the construction side of it, I've had great experience with all the construction managers and um, GCs in that, you know, as soon as I, I think just like anybody, as soon as you show them that you know what you're talking about, right. they, they'll listen and, yeah. you know, developing great relationships. I've got um, CMs that I've stayed in touch with years after projects and we kind of collaborate and ask each other things. So, yeah. And I think we see that here too. Although it's funny, I had, uh, we, we, we did this meet and greet last Friday and one of the designers from, uh, from our New Jersey office came and she, you know, she, you know, did her presenting and, and part. And then we have another one coming up this week. And I, you know, shout out the invite and she, you know, she said to me, sure, I have no problem being the only female in the room uh, to, to kind of even things out. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. It's a good point. Like, I didn't even think about it at that point, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's <laughs> unfortunate. Well, you don't necessarily have to think about it, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> but, I, but I think, you know, women in this industry are usually always conscious of it. Yeah. Um, and it's great to be in, you know, really supportive environments. My office right now is almost 50% women. Um, and, you know, I don't think that there's any barrier to advancement yeah. where we are and, and being in, you know, at conferences that support women, you can talk about things. I was, I'm part of, um, a networking group that is for female executives and it's really, you know, great to have that support. Which one is that? Uh, chief. Chief. Yeah. And yeah. Chief. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. And, um, it's, it's nice to be in a group of like our core group of these women who just, we just get it and all yeah. the things that we're balancing and we're all in different professions, but yep. there's that commonality of how do we, how do we take care of all the things that we need to take care of and get done the stuff that we want to do. Listen, it's, it's a tough balance. It really is. And I think that we, you're absolutely right. You have to be in a supportive environment. I think the, on the male side, those that have wives that work, they, they get it right. Like, mm -hmm. and I always think of my wife and that's part of why and how we've adapted the culture here is, you know, how was my work, my wife seen at work and how did she work? And ultimately, how does she balance kids and all the things that that come along with kids, especially as kids get older? They actually that's what I always tell all the young the young moms here is, you know, that part's easy. Wait until they get older and, you know, they have all this stuff they have yeah. to do. Um, and so it has to be a supportive environment. And even pre pandemic, we were supportive. Right. We if you if you needed to get home early to you know get your kid from school and do all your driving then you do that and you get back on the computer at 10 o'clock at night. OK, doesn't matter to me as long as you're happy and doing your work and everything's happening. It's great. And I think I think more firms are open to that these days. Right. It's less of that boys club or that one, the master architect and everybody just does whatever the hell that person wants. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's great to be in a supportive firm and understand flexibility. And it's not just it's not just women. Right. It's anybody yeah. who has extenuating circumstances or, you know, things, responsibilities outside of work and to be in an environment that allows you to do all the things that are important to you. Yeah. That's that's so important. I, I agree. So let's talk a little bit about um, HOK Impact, um, because it kind of sets the stage, I think, for your career um, sort of going forward. And um, so I just I noted down what it is. HOK Impact supports efforts to give back by providing pro bono professional services uh, and organizing participation in community uh, service events. So what inspired you to help create this initiative? Right. So it, it started with a presentation that my colleague, Kim Dowdell, 
gave, um, she's going to be the, she's the incoming AIA president for 24. Mm -hmm. So she was in the New York HOK office at the time. This was 2009 or 2010. And she gave a presentation on SEED, which is an organization that she helped co-found, which is social, economic, environmental design. Okay. So she was talking about that and um, how design can impact people's lives in so many different ways. And I reached out to her right afterwards. I'm like, that's, that's amazing. I'm so interested in this. How do we do that at HOK? <laughs> and and just, we just instantly hit it off. I was in the St. Louis office at the time. She's in New York, but my family's here. So I'd come back and visit and we were planning. And she's always been involved in, in NOMA. So she invited me to the the Boston conference that year and we were doing the volunteer project together and there were a bunch of people from HOK's offices there for I think Chicago and DC and Atlanta and we're like hey you know we're, we're thinking about starting this um, corporate social responsibility initiative and you know getting involved in the communities more would you be interested and it was just this resounding yes from everybody that we talked to mm -hmm. so it was a real grassroots effort to you know get we were all mostly younger employees um, who had a passion for this and thought it was really important. So we kind of talked regularly and how do we make the business case for this? What are we really trying to accomplish? And we got it to a point where we were able to present it to leadership and we had some really open leaders in the office who were willing to listen and understood the importance of it. Sure. And then allowed us the flexibility to, to work on it. So we, um, I think we all met in Chicago one one weekend to, or I guess it was overlapping with a, with a, another conference. So we kind of strategized and put together a business plan and um, just got inspired by this other conference. I can't remember the name of it right now, but, um, and, um, and just went from there. And then kind of, it was, it was slow going at first, okay. I think just because it was, you know, following the recession and there were other things that, you know, the firm had to focus on, but it, we just kept going at this grassroots movement. Um, and we were working both, you know, bottom up and top down, getting some, some champions in the leadership page. Okay. And moving things forward. Um, and then I think we launched officially in 2011 okay. and, um, made it a real impetus of the firm to, to do this type of work and, and talk about it. This was all stuff that HOK was doing already. We were just trying to showcase the different things that we were well, that's great. already And it's doing. still going on today, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you been able to bring that sort of same aspect to your current firm? Yeah, in, in a smaller scale, obviously, right? You know, mm -hmm. we're, yeah. we're, we're much smaller, <laughs> but... Um, Everybody is. Yeah, and, but I think, you know, we... The work we do at KG&D right now is very community-focused anyway, mm -hmm. so... Um, it's not a heavy lift to to talk about like the um, community based aspects of the design. That's stuff that we do every day, okay. um, and then giving up, finding opportunities for volunteerism and donations and things. That's you know, um, it, it's it's pretty welcome in the office. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's really great. So let's talk a little bit about your origin story. Um, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Yeah, uh, so I grew up in Westchester in Mount Kisco and um, which is actually <laughs> unintentionally where I live now. Um, I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got uh, three older brothers and a younger sister. Um, and my whole childhood, my dad was a pediatrician in town, but uh, 
before that, then my family had moved around a bunch. He was, um, he taught biomedical engineering at Carnegie Mellon. Oh, wow. And yeah, just, I mean, he's just a, a genius. Yeah, um, sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think when my three brothers were born, uh, he decided to go back to medical school. Um, and so they, they actually moved to St. Louis for a bit too, for med school. They, uh, and then they moved back to New York and settled in, in Westchester where, where they still live. But, okay. um, so we were, there are five of us. My mom uh, did a lot of volunteerism. She taught nursery school for, you know, a decade or so, did catering. And, but she was always there. She, she was driving us around all the time. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and then, so how, did you always want to be an architect? How did that sort of bug happen? No, I, it, I was late to the party for, okay. for architecture. Oh, cool. um, I, when I was in high school, I wanted to do art therapy. Oh. Um, so there was somebody came to, I went to a pretty progressive high school and we had all these different things and they had a, a career day and someone came in and talked about it. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting helping people through through art. So, and my dad had always talked about have it, the importance of having a career. So in my head at the time, I'm like, well, doctor or lawyer, and I don't want to be a lawyer. So, um, you know, I was going to do psychiatry. Okay. Uh, when I went to college though, all of the studio art classes conflicted with the, the labs. So I dropped the art and I was just doing, I was pre-med, um, but I was an English major, which should have been a signal to me that I did <laughs> not want to do science if I didn't want to major in it. Right. So I was kind of getting through, getting through other classes. I actually, I, I loved organic chemistry, but some of the other stuff, I, it was just a struggle to get through. Okay. Um, and I was studying for my MCATs after my junior year. It's like, I can't. I hate this. I I do not want to relearn all of this stuff. And then I was like, well, as, as a then I'm an English major. What am I going to do with that? And I'm like, I guess I'll teach. So I I finished college. I moved to Italy. I taught English in Florence for a year, English language. And I'd always planned to go back to get my PhD to do English literature. Um, and I moved from Florence to London. And I was trying to find a um, job just for another year or so before I went back to grad school. And uh, England is much stricter about uh, <laughs> visas and labor, labor laws and stuff than Italy right. is. So it was, it was harder to find something. So I had a lot of downtime. <laughs> um, and it was kind of really before like the big HGTV swing here. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of design shows there and they were talking about the psychology of interior design. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. It's something that I'd always, you know, been interested in, but yeah. never considered. And I talked to a friend of the family and she's like, well, if you're interested in interiors, you should, you know, do architecture and then you can specialize later. And I was like, oh yeah, it's like that, it makes total sense. Yeah. And it was just exactly what I wanted to do. When, and when I started grad school, it all clicked. So I was late, I was older, I was 24 when I started grad school. Okay. And I did architecture and urban design. So it took okay. a little, I was like 28 when I graduated. But, um, so it, you know, it, starting my career a little bit later, but I'm really glad that I had those other experiences. That's an amazing experience. Yeah, absolutely. And the yeah. fact that you kind of came to the two almost independently and joined them together, that, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And I think, you know, having background in writing and stuff has, has helped me and, yeah. um, 
I like having that I've lived in different places and kind of seeing different experiences. And, yeah. you know, it's yeah. it's been able to help me pull things together. For, That's amazing. For so was there anyone, uh, any person that was very influential as you sort of started working in the field that kind of you remember as a, you know, someone that, you know, kind of helped you out? Yeah, there's there. There are two people who were really instrumental in my development, I think. Um, Lisa Collar at the HOK St. Louis office. She she kind of took all of the, the younger people under her wing and you know gave us opportunities. And she was so selfless in doling out responsibilities and tasks. And you know, if you did a good job at this, you got a a bigger step next time. And she really helped in the mentorship and moving people forward and making sure that people got opportunities and making sure that people got credit for the work that they did, which I think not didn't always happen. Yeah. Um, so she was really great in allowing me to kind of step into my own and take ownership of pieces of projects and, um, and really develop that. And then when I was starting HOK Impact, uh, Marianne Lazarus in our office was super instrumental in that. She started the sustainability group at HOK, you know, 20, 30 years before we did impact and kind of went through the exact same steps. And so she was really great in teaching us how to talk about it from a business perspective and kind of align what we were trying to do and what we were, how we were talking about it with leadership to get resonance and make sure that we could move things forward. And it wasn't just a passion project for the people who were involved. It really made sense for HOK as an organization. Sure, sure. And so you're, you know, you go to, you go to graduate school, you get an architecture degree, um, and then later you take this Harvard Business School online called Big Data for Social Good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would love for you to explain this idea of big data for social good, um, and more importantly, sort of architecture for social good. You know, how, how, does, how did that experience kind of form what you're doing today? Yeah, so it, that was, it was a great class. And it okay. was outside of my wheelhouse, um, but definitely related to what I was interested in. And it, it looked at things like census data and you know, tax returns and just kind of all this, you know, data that people that people at Harvard could easily collect and used it to study the these opportunities for advancement and how, um, like I said before, uh, how people are able to or not able to achieve the American dream. Mm -hmm. They they had a, a chart in the beginning of the class, I think that like in 19, four, people born in the 1940s had a 90% chance of doing better than their parents. And then it just, you know, it went down from there. So like, yeah. I think the people born in the 1980s, it was like 40 or 50%. And it was, <laughs> <laughs> I was sending it to my, my sister and it's like, oh man, it's depressing. But yeah, I get um, it. But, you know, using this empirical metric data to develop, to, to identify trends and look at people's um, incomes and social mobility and, you know, where, where they were able to advance and kind of what policies around like housing vouchers or school, school choice, how that kind of influenced their ability to advance and, and move out of the, you know, their 
situations. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was, you know, so interesting. And um, I was talking to one of the researchers after the fact, and they said they were doing another study about, um, you know, how certain schools could impact people's abilities to to do the same thing in, in advance. And I ha we haven't gotten here yet, but they're saying, yeah, we don't know exactly what about the schools it is, um, but, you know, we're tracking this stuff. And I was talking with her with another architect and said, well, we could figure out what yeah. those things are, right? And if you can marry like the that kind of practical design, um, what people are actually experiencing with the data and figure out how they pair together. I think that that's so interesting. Yeah, it's really, it's, um, I'm impressed to see how they've collected that data too. You know, that's uh, something I, I, would, I definitely want to look into and see. Um, at at KG&D, um, I guess, tell us a little bit about the firm itself, um, but then also specifically, I guess, what drew you there ultimately from HOK and obviously your focus is on educational. So I'd love to talk a more about that. Right, so KG&D, we're um, about a 35 person firm right now in Westchester. We're in Mount Kisco. Um, our primary business is K through 12 education, but we really focus on community buildings and you know improving where people work, play, learn. Um, so we do a lot of recreation centers, we do, um, lots of uh, boys and girls clubs and YMCA's and um, we also do corporate commercial office spaces, uh, municipal buildings, but it's really about um, the, the community aspect of it. Right. Which is was really important for me. Sure. With, with my background and what I'm interested in. Um, I became interested in school design, which is something that when I was at HOK, we really didn't do a lot of K-12 work. Okay. Um, in our office and working in St. Louis, that seems like a, something to really look at, right? Because a lot of the city schools in St. Louis were, are not, um, at the time, weren't accredited and it was should have been a real you know, focus. And so I think it's about looking in your own backyard and um, how to improve your neighborhood. So that really sparked in me the, that latent interest at the time of getting involved in schools and how do we kind of shape where people live or shape how they're learning um, and provide opportunities to, to do more and to make school really exciting and, you know, give that student agency and people, you know, kids really be proud of where they go to school. Right. Um, I think that's been, a, you know, a great, great opportunity for me having come to kg and a. Yeah. Um, so um, you're helping lead the educational practice, advance the firm's next generation of educational facility design. Um, how does that, how do you, how do you meet with the, the schools, understand their curriculum, and then how does that ultimately translate into you know, physical design? Right. Um, so a lot of times the, those people are the assistant assistant superintendents of curriculum are at the table anyway. They're okay. you know or or we work with technology directors or the people who kind of are coming to us with the project, and it's understanding kind of what their big picture goals are for the districts mm -hmm. um, and for the schools specifically, um, 
where they went, we worked with the Pelham School District and they had their retreat at the Steelcase showroom here mm. in the city. And it's, you know, looking at kind of those, um, how to advance like through, you know, furniture and things, but like how, how does that flexible space and mobile furniture give them the opportunities to, to teach in different ways. Right. Right. So we, we have the conversations kind of at the, at that top leadership level. And then we go into user groups with the, the teachers, with staff, with students, um, anybody who's really going to be impacted by the space. Sometimes we have parent groups That's great. Um, to understand what their interests are yep. and kind of how they see themselves in the space, what's working for them, what they love about school, what's the challenge for them, and you know where where they would you know big picture like what do they really want to see you know and you talk to elementary school students and they want slides and pools and McDonald's in the schools, yeah, that's cool. um, which you know we're we've yet to put a McDonald's in in any of our schools, but um, but the, the student I, I, my experience in doing this too is that the students really appreciate because we've done some high school labs and things like that. The students really appreciate being listened to, right? The parents definitely appreciate it. Um, but to me, that the teachers also, you know, those that are actually in the classroom and can um, talk about how they actually function, mm -hmm. <laughs> it makes a huge difference than just an administrator kind of saying, or, or even a superintendent. Yes, the superintendent, all those, everyone at the top needs to kind of guide it from an overall, you know, this is our goal from a curriculum. But the the day to day user really can help drive some little changes that happen. And funny thing about Steelcase is, um, we specified um, some mobile um, chairs that are on these really cool casters that have you put your backpack underneath mm -hmm. it, um, specifically for lab schools and. Um, the feedback I got was, please don't ever specify that again, because these kids just they're so good, those chairs that they just roll all over the place. And it's <laughs> the most distracting thing ever, <laughs> which is really funny. They play bumper cars and all yeah, sorts of stuff. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. But it's interesting, too, that, um, you know, looking at like the multimodal learning styles. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, some kids do really well in a four legged chair at their desk, not moving and focused. And then, you know, I know my, my son, he needs to move. Mm -hmm. And so having wobble chairs or things where they can like yeah. turn and twist. Some kids learn better in beanbags in the hallways yep. or in small groups, large groups. So that's, that's a big part of what's really exciting. But we do is creating those multiple opportunities for learning to give yeah. everybody a chance to find their spot. It's just like office design, right? right. I mean, it's you, you give a variety of spaces and people work you know, better or, or more efficiently in certain different environments. And if you give options, people utilize those options. Which yeah. It's great. Well, having a choice makes you feel so much yeah, more empowered. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Rather than being stuck in one spot. Yeah. I, I, I could say though, the difference with kids, cause my, my older daughter would prefer being, you know, told you don't move and you sit here and you learn like in a very traditional classroom environment. Mm -hmm. And my younger one is same thing. She has to move. There's no way you could tell her to sit still for more than 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah. So you've got to have those options, which is great. Yeah. But it's very different from, you know, back when we were in school, right? You either learned this way or you didn't. So. Yeah. I remember doing my homework <laughs> on the couch and like my dad would, I mean, just you, you do homework with your shoes on at a desk 
and that's how you do it. And you'd uh, yes. walk through the living room with us on the couch and just feel like, oh. Not that my kids would ever listen to this podcast, but uh, they would laugh at that because I say, <clears throat> I don't do the shoe thing, mm -hmm. but I am, you do your homework at a desk. Like you should be doing your homework at a desk. I still, yeah. I don't know, this sort of laying around stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Also, because I think there's a lot of like goofing off on the phone, which is uh, which is a problem. <laughs> so we need to see you. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so final question. Uh, is there anything we haven't covered that you'd want to tell our listeners? Um, you know, we talked about a lot. I think it's really just the idea of um, that collaborating and bringing in as many voices as possible. I think, I know we've talked about that, but I think that that's my biggest focus is mm -hmm. like getting people at the table. Yeah. Right. And how that can only serve to make a better project and one that resonates with more people. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I yeah. couldn't agree more. So Sarah, thank you so much for being my guest here on the Anti-Architect podcast. Uh, I'm excited to see where your career takes you in the yeah. future. Um, you've only just begun. So, uh, it's going to be exciting to, to watch and, and listen for. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, to learn more about Sarah, uh, you can check out her LinkedIn, Sarah Dursa. Um, and for more information on KG&D, visit their website, KG, kgdarchitects.com, all one word. Um, they do beautiful work. Anything I missed in terms of plugs? No, thank awesome. you. Awesome. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming in. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah.